You know, isn't it a great thing to be in God's house on Sunday morning with God's people? I mean, what a blessing it is to be able to, to worship our Lord and Savior. You know, this morning I would like for us to take a moment and pray and ask God to bless our time together. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we thank you for all that you provide for us. Father, it's our joy to worship you. There is no other God worthy of our worship. You are the one true living God. You are beyond anything that we could comprehend. And yet you love us so very much. Father, we're grateful that you gave us Jesus, your son, so that we might be made right with you. I thank you, Father, for guiding us, for leading us, for giving us your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity today to cry out with our voice that our praise, the, the, the sacrifice, the praise of our lips, Father, goes to you. And you and you alone are worthy. Holy Spirit, I ask that in this moment you would speak to each of our hearts. That you would use this for your glory, for your honor. And we ask this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. You know, our Savior, who is also a master carpenter, he continues the process of building his church. And I'm excited about the opportunity that we have today because the church, the church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is a people. The church are, is the people of God. The church that Jesus is building is composed of living stones. That's kind of an oxymoron, living stones. But you know, the, the stone part of it means that Jesus makes a firm foundation for us. The living part of it means that he, he rose from the dead and he lives forever. And so therefore, when he lives in us, we live forever. And we become living stones in the temple that he is building. It's living stones that are established in a spiritual temple so that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices to him. See, this morning I'm going to be coming out of 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you have your Bible, and we'll go ahead and open up to that. And what I want you to know is that Peter wants his readers to see that Christianity is not an individualistic thing. Yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We have, each one of us has a relationship with God, but we also have a relationship with each other. See, we are being built together into 
a spiritual house or temple in the Lord. See, this truth is especially important in our increasingly fragmented, mobile, and impersonal society. I was reminded of this this last week. See, I have a cousin that contacted me last week, and I literally have not seen him since I was about 12 years old. I have not physically seen him. His name is Burton. Burton Adams. When I was 12 years old, that was 40 years ago. I'm going to date myself here in just a minute, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, we've been Facebook messengering back and forth. And I told him, you know, his, his father passed away not too long ago, like maybe six or eight weeks ago. And so I told him, I said, I remember having some really good times at your mom and dad's place around the 4th of July. And this is what he replied. He said, yeah, I remember you too. <laughs> he said, I remember the last time I saw you, you were doing Richard Nixon impersonations. I had totally forgot about that. I was trying to. But it was one of those things where it's like, wow, that was a long time ago. But our, our society becomes so fragmented. You have young people today, grown children that move literally, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away from their parents. And I think this is notable because God made us to be connected with other people. And so today in our society, there is much more of a higher need for people to have a sense of community. And that's where the church comes in. See, God designed the church to meet that need. I mean, I could say a lot of things about that, but I need to limit myself to two observations. The first one is this. We are built together to the extent that every believer exercises their priesthood under the headship of, of Jesus Christ. That each one of us, we are called to be a, a, a priesthood of believers. That means we become priests to one another. Secondly, I would say we're built together to the extent that we live within our identity as a distinct people. I mean, the people of God, they're born again believers who've received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, who have been baptized and have publicly proclaimed their faith in Him as the one who forgave their sin and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and, and lives forevermore. That's our identity in Christ as the people of God. We accept His sacrifice for our sin and we believe that with all of our heart. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here doing what I'm doing today. But we are the people of God. We are a learning and a studying and a listening people who are seeking to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. We are worshiping people. 
People who bow down before God in recognition of His supreme worth and all that He has done for us in our life, but also that we recognize that we are completely and utterly dependent upon Him for all that we have and all that we are. See, the church that Jesus is building is a praying people. People like us who not only talk to God, but expect God to talk back to us and respond to us. We're a sharing people who give because we've been we've received so much from him, from his gracious hand. We can't help but share that with others. We are also a serving people. Who follow the example of the ultimate servant in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to really be the church today? I mean, what is Christ doing in the world through his church today? See, we need to understand who we are. Really, who we are if we are to be all that God intends us to be and to do and accomplish all that he intends us to do and accomplish. See, the biblical writers, they they spoke of the church in a myriad, a, a variety of ways nearly 80 different ones that they spoke of the church. One of the dominant New Testament figures of the church is the people of God. The people of God. And Peter used this term to instruct and to encourage the Lord's disciples who'd been scattered around the globe because of persecution and because of other factors. And this morning, I want us to look at that description of the church the people of God. Do you recall in Exodus 19, I'm going to go to 1 Peter in just a moment. In Exodus 19, how God spoke through His servant Moses to the people. When the covenant was established, they were at the base of Mount Sinai. He gave them the law. Do you recall what he told Moses to tell the people. And this is what, what it says in Exodus 19.3. It says, Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, listen to Peter. As he speaks to the church. Listen to Peter as he speaks to the church. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and following. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had received, not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is addressing the church even as Moses had addressed the children of Israel. He says there, you are a chosen race. Folks, that's not just a compliment. It's a divine commission. You are a chosen race. See, on the day of Pentecost, God identified the 120 disciples who were gathered in the upper room. He identified them as the new Israel. The people through whom He would carry out His work on earth. His redemptive ministry to the world. That sound of the mighty rushing wind that we, that we read about that came from heaven. It proclaimed the breath and the life of God as abiding within this body of believers. I think that's huge. That God breathed in His Spirit into the church. As God had taken the dust of the earth and breathed into man's nostrils so that he would have life, he became a living and breathing soul. So God was breathing His life, His Spirit into His new disciples that they might become the living body of Christ. What we call the people of God. See, the tongues of fire that lit on their heads were the Shekinah of the Old Testament, the glory of God's presence upon them. And in these miraculous events at Pentecost, God was announcing to the Jewish nation and to the Jewish exiles who came back to celebrate Pentecost that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah, that indeed He was the Son of God, and His disciples now constituted the new Israel, the new chosen people through whom God would do His work. It wasn't either or, it was both and. But listen... God never limited His blessings to those who were Abraham's biological descendants. He blessed them so they could bless others. And He blesses us so that we can bless others. See, through believing in Jesus, even, even the Gentiles become God's chosen people. That word chosen, eklektos. In each instance it's used in the New Testament, it depends on the context. Eklektos means those selected or those picked out. And in Scripture, it usually defines the one who is the object of choice, the one of divine favor. Although that's kind of difficult for our finite minds to wrap it up ourselves around. We don't quite get it. The fact that some are chosen. But don't hear what I'm not saying. That does not imply. That does not imply the rejection 
of those not chosen. I mean, God does not predestine some people to eternal death. Scripture tells us that God is not willing for any, anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, Christians are not better people than other men or women. We're just blessed people. We've been blessed by Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus said over in John 15, 16, He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. I mean, he had already said in verse eight, he said, this is my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, God had called Abraham. And the latter, the nation of Israel, to be his chosen people in order that they might be a fruitful missionary force in the world. But what happened? The nation of Israel failed to bring forth the fruit that our Lord desired. So he extended his call to all people. He extended his call. I think that's big stuff. Because he did that, I'm included. You're included. At this point in history, the church, the people of God, is his chosen people. You have been chosen. You are the people of God. See, we become a member of the family of God, not through our biological descent, not because of who, which family we were born into, but because of the spiritual new birth, because we've been born again. We've been born into the family of God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Remember this, you are a chosen. You are chosen by God. You are a chosen race. He also says in this passage, you are a royal priesthood. (laughs) Folks, that's not just a compliment. It's a divine commission. You are a royal priesthood. I mean, through Moses, God told the people of Israel, he said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood is what Peter calls us. And as believer priests, we should live our lives so that the Heavenly Father's qualities are evident in us. I mean, think about it. A child of the King of Kings should bear some kind of family resemblance to the King of Kings. Stop all this nonsense down here in this world below that is just temporary. We should bear a family resemblance. See, a priest, a priest is a a go-between. I would also say that a priest is is a meeting place and a priest is a a bridge builder. A priest is a bridge builder. See, this passage does not teach an exclusive 
priestly clergy. Instead, it proclaims the priesthood of every believer, that each one of us is a priest unto God and unto each other. And the responsibility of every believer is to help unbelievers come to know God as they have come to know Him through Jesus Christ. That's your responsibility and mine. To be a kingdom of priests. See, as the function, as the people of God were to perform the, the function of the priesthood, were to be the instrument, this is huge, the instrument of bringing the message of God's grace and love to a needy world. That's your job and mine as a priest, to be a go between. We're the ones that the, the, the priest represents uh, the, the people to God, and he also represents God to the people. But every one of us has that responsibility as a priest to one another and to the lost world around us. See, we are to be the kind of people, the kind of people through whom the unsaved world will be drawn to the Lord because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in us and through us. They are to see that in us. We have a responsibility to God and to those who don't yet believe to be a meeting place where they can meet with God and God can meet with them, where they can get to know God through our lives. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. He also says you're a holy nation. This also is not just a compliment, it's a divine commission. To Israel, God said it this way in Leviticus eleven forty-five. He said, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's a divine commission. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He wrote this in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He calls us to a holy life as the people of God. See that word holy. It's not really a word that is in the vocabulary of our society much. Not holy. See, to the Hebrews, holy meant to be separate. It, mean, it meant to be distinct. It was used in reference to that which belonged to deity, to God, and to signify something different from the common, something different from the ordinary. When we speak of God being holiness, holy, we speak of, of Him, of His otherness, of Him being different from us, being set apart, distinct from who we are. By His holiness, God is proclaiming His difference, His otherness from humanity. Let me put this in some practical terms. God's house is different from everybody else's house. The Lord's day 
is different from every other day. God's ways are different from our ways. That's his holiness. That's his otherness coming through. In calling us to live a life that is holy and proclaiming us to be a holy nation. God is calling us to be different than other people. Than the society around us. We are called to be holy. We're called to be different. We are not to be secular. We're not to be materialistic. We're called to something different. A holiness just as God is holy, separate and distinct. We are called to be separate and distinct in him. See, the members of the church are called to a holy life, to a life different from the world because we have voluntarily chosen to make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. You did that of your own volition. You chose to give your life to Jesus Christ. You volunteered to be in his army. You weren't drafted. You voluntarily gave that allegiance to Jesus Christ. And he's the one who makes our lives different by his law of love. We're to be different in the way we live, the diff- different in the way we speak, in the, in the way we work, in the way we study, in the way we serve, because of Jesus's presence in our lives. All Christians, whether we're salespeople or doctors or mechanics or athletes or students or spouses or others, should be different from those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. See, to the degree that we are truly a holy people, we will find ourselves blameless before God. See, to be holy does not mean that we will be cantankerous. Sometimes I think Christians are some of the the crankiest people I know. It also doesn't mean that we're supposed to be weird. You know, strange. And it certainly means that we're not supposed to be self-righteous. Instead, it means just the opposite of those things. We will be so filled with love, so filled with grace, so filled with the wisdom of God that we could not conceal our presence even if we wanted to. Because it's who we are. That love, that grace, that mercy comes out. See, we are a holy nation. But you're also God's own people. Not just a compliment. It's a divine commission. For Christians to claim that they are God's chosen people is something infinitely greater than just some kind of egotistical boast. Oh, we're God's chosen people. We're, we're God's own possession. Then you start, ought to start acting like it. We need that. The world needs that. 
I mean, falsely proclaiming, falsely proclaiming to be God's people is blasphemy. Because you're saying that you represent God and his interests here. To be God's people means that we are totally his possession. Totally. See, we're a generation of cheap Christians. Cheap Christians going to heaven as inexpensively as possible. Religious hobos, spiritual deadbeats living on milk instead of meat, crusts of bread instead of manna, as though we were on a cut-rate excursion. Listen, the world at its worst needs the church at its best. That's why we need to step up. That's why we need to raise the bar. That's why we need to continue to come together in unity and, 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 and please the King of Kings is because the world demands it. We need it. See, believers should be like lighthouses that make no noise, but warn of danger by shining a bright beacon of light to those who are in danger, to those who are in darkness. See, the church is God's own possession. And it means that he is the Lord. He's the master. He's the owner. When we say that we belong to him, it means that he's in charge. He's the boss. He's, he takes care of all of that. His authority is recognized and his will is accepted, uh, appreciated and respected. I mean, what does the boss want? What does the boss want? That's where we need to be. Not, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm just going to go do whatever I want. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing, and, and that's, that's good enough. Well, that's probably not what the boss wants. And maybe you should consult with the boss before you go off running down the road on your own tangent. See, the church is also God's purchased possession. I mean, Scripture tells us that God's people are a peculiar people. That really means a purchased people. The Greek word here carries the idea of making a ring around something to mark it as one's own. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. Christ has made a ring around us and he's claimed us for himself. And you know who we are? We're his bride. <laughs> we're his bride. But we're acting many times like a prostitute. And we think we're going to show up any old way. And he has marked us as belonging to himself. This one's mine. Don't anybody mess with it. 
I know how much I love my bride. I can only imagine how much more Christ loves his bride. Paul declares in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He's got a plan for us. We need to step up to that plan. I mean, the church has been purchased by a loving God at a great cost. And we hear a lot these days about cheap grace and how it doesn't mean much to be a Christian. But salvation is the costliest item on earth. It cost our Lord everything. It cost him everything to provide it. And it costs us everything to possess it. You can't hang on to your old life and be the spotless bride at the same time. One of them has to go to the wayside. See, this degree of permanency of his love is for all people. It's for us. Because the church is God's precious, precious possession. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That tremendous verse proclaims the greatness of God's love for each one of us, for a lost world. And reveals to us how extensive his love and his mercy is. And how much he wants to show that grace and mercy in our world. I love this because over in Romans 8, verse 31 and 32, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, God calls us to be a royal priesthood. So that in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, it says this, it says, so that, here's the reason, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are no longer children of the darkness. He's called us into his light. We have become the chosen. We have become the royal priesthood, the holy nation, his own possession. He has done that for us. See, on the day of Pentecost, the newly birthed church proclaimed in a powerful and gracious manner the mighty works of God. Sounds a lot like proclaiming the excellencies 
of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, these mighty acts of God were displayed in the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth, of Him living a sinless life, of Him giving His life so that you and I could be made right with God. And on the third day, Him raising from the death, showing us that He has victory over death and the grave and hell. And then being ascended into heaven so that He might ever be interceding on our behalf. There is no God like my God. None. See, these four pictures that we have of New Testament believers in 1 Peter, it emphasizes the importance of unity and harmony because we belong to one family. We're all part of the family of God if we know Jesus as our Savior. We're all sharing the same divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We are living stones in one building, in one temple. Priests that we are all serving in this temple. But you need to understand that the cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's offensive because the cross humbles our human pride. The cross tells people that their own good deeds, their own good works will not get them where they want to go. It tells them that they are sinners who have offended a holy God. Secondly, the Lordship of Christ. Coming under the Lordship of Christ offends people. You know, everybody likes the idea of having an Aladdin genie type Jesus. You know, the one who fulfills all of your desires. But now a Christ, a Savior, a Lord, who is in fact the Master, who confronts sin and demands obedience. Now that's another story. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. The cross is offensive and calling Jesus Lord is offensive. But I have inside information. He says here, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In order... I love this because the last part, uh, verse 10 says, in order that it says, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I've received mercy. I'm not going to get what I deserve. See, those who receive mercy were outsiders and now they're insiders. If you are among the outsiders today, please realize that God is like the energy that runs through an electrical line. And when you flip the switch, 
That's faith on your part. Putting your faith in Jesus, flipping the switch, powers up the rest and allows you to walk in his grace and mercy. It makes it possible to you, for you to live a life with love for your fellow man that you didn't have before. It allows the grace of God to come and flow through your life. His mercy to flow through you. So I would say to you this morning, respond to Christ with faith that says, yes, I will receive you. Yes, I will trust you. Yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will obey you. Yes, I will depend on you. And the only thing I can encourage you to do is do it now. Because one day, King Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he's not coming to give his life for many. He's coming bringing judgment. Either we know him or we don't. And I want you to know, I don't want him to have any problem recognizing his servant. I want him to say, Ridge, you old rascal, get on up here. I don't want him to say, you look familiar, but I just don't quite know you. That would be a sad day. But today you have the choice. Today, he may be calling you. He may be knocking at the door of your heart saying, I need you to, I need to come in. I need to, I need to become Lord of your life. I need to be your savior. And we're saying, not today, Lord, not today. I got some sinning to do and I'm not ready to give it up. We don't know which breath is going to be our last. You may walk out of here and get hit by a truck. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm telling you the reality. I read the newspaper. I see the obituaries in there. I see the news that, that happens around here. It happens all over the place. And we never know which moment is going to be our last. So my encouragement to you is be prepared. Don't wait. Get it done now so that you know for sure when he does return, he's going to know you.